welcome to the Function Health Podcast. My name is Sean Strayer, and together with my co-host Ryan Beck, we aim to deliver the best content in health, longevity, medical education, and scientific career development. In this episode, we sit down with our very first guest, Dr. Cassandra Gutierrez. Dr. Gutierrez is a faculty member and chair of the biochemistry department at Penn Tech University in Pennsylvania. Her lab and continued interests focus on the molecular mechanisms behind insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. So Dr. Gutierrez, I know that every minute you spend with us, you spend out of the lab where you're doing some very important research. So I want to just say thank you for taking the time to sit with us today to discuss this important topic and get out to so many people. So getting right into it, how would you describe diabetes to our listeners? Thank you guys for having me, and I feel honored to be your first guest. So diabetes, as we refer to it, is really this umbrella term for two distinct conditions that we call type 1 and type 2. We're going to talk about some of the differences, but the thing is with both conditions, the patient really isn't able to properly store and use glucose. Type 1 diabetes is more of an autoimmune disorder, and type 2 diabetes is an acquired disease stemming from a couple factors we'll talk about. Another super important distinction I want to get out of the way is that type 1 diabetics are entirely insulin-dependent, where type 2 diabetics can be managed using a couple drugs we'll talk about. I'm going to keep hammering home this idea about insulin and the risks associated with too much of it. We know from years of data that diabetics are prone to serious complications like heart disease and stroke. That was an incredible summary, Dr. Gutierrez. And, you know, one thing when we were researching this, and this is a topic that we've been interested in for years, we just keep stumbling upon this literature about this idea of insulin resistance and how that ties into metabolic syndrome and how that ties into type 2 diabetes. So can you break down, you know, whether at a molecular level or just a, a basic level, can you break down insulin resistance for us and how that plays into all the other things we're going to be talking about? Right. So hyperinsulinemia is starting to be appreciated by more and more researchers and physicians as the thing that ties together all the pieces of metabolic syndrome. So I hate to interrupt you real quick, but for our listeners and for myself, can you give me an expert uh, explanation of what exactly metabolic syndrome is? I think it's going to be important for the listeners to understand metabolic syndrome is because we're going to keep coming back to it. So back in 1988, Gary Reven spoke in his Banting lecture about Syndrome X. And Syndrome X, which we now know as metabolic syndrome, is a cluster of conditions that go together in these metabolically unfit people. So with these people, which is now actually one in three of U.S. adults, they're going to have hypertension, hyperglycemia, excess body fat around the waist, and abnormal cholesterol or triglyceride levels. And with all that being said, this really puts these patients at risk for ASCVVD and various other issues in the body. Yeah, you know, I feel like we've mentioned the words metabolic syndrome probably 50 times in our four episodes already. So it's nice to have an expert actually explain what that is. Um, that was great. So before we dive deeper into kind of the physiology and I guess pathophysiology of diabetes and insulin resistance, can you talk to us about the various lab results that we or the various lab tests that we could do for our diabetic patients and maybe mention what normal is so people have an understanding of what the baseline is if they ever get tested by their doctor they know what to look for 
Yeah, I want to say first that the ways we're currently testing for diabetes misses a lot of patients that are very high risk. So the one test that most people are aware of is the fasting glucose test. And this is usually done after fasting 8 to 12 hours, and they test it by drawing blood and checking the serum concentration. So if you think about it, the only thing maintaining these patients' blood glucose level after a fast is gluconeogenesis. And we know that gluconeogenesis is the last thing to go awry in our patients with type 2 diabetes. That can't suppress it, and that's what causes these higher levels. So what we consider normal for a fasting glucose level is 70 to 100 milligrams per deciliter. Anything under 70 in this case we'll call hypoglycemia and above 100 is hyperglycemia in this context. So let's say we're just talking about a non-diabetic with regular ins like insulin sensitivity, right? What could their blood glucose levels get up to after that large carbohydrate meal that they ingest? Absolutely. So somebody with normal insulin sensitivity can see a BGL of up to 140 after that type of meal. And so in this normal physiologic individual, the insulin's able to respond appropriately and it's still within a normal range to bring down that bump in glucose post-feeding. So the other major test is going to be hemoglobin A1c, which is a decent proxy for average glucose exposure. And I think this test is super interesting because it's measuring glycosylated hemoglobin, which is a result of glycation that happens with monosaccharides. The last test is actually my favorite, and that's the postprandial insulin test. Instead of worrying only about glucose concentrations, we're also testing insulin exposure, which is much more important. While prediabetics have a normal fasting glucose for years before being diagnosed, this test gives the provider an insight much earlier than other tests. I definitely think the audience is going to appreciate this information because most people, I mean, if they've, especially like if, you know, if you've ever been pregnant or even part of normal screening as you get older, I'm sure a lot of people have had these tests before. And it's kind of nice to know the basis behind it. And so I want to get into the pathophysiology that comes along with type 2 diabetes. But I think before we do that, what I'd like to do, if you don't mind, I'd like to delve into the normal physiology of glucose disposal because it sounds like a, pretty much everything you're talking about as far as insulin resistance, it's an inappropriate disposal of glucose. So in order to understand that fully, I want to understand a, a normal physiology of somebody who's insulin sensitive. What happens to glucose after they ingest it? Yep. So there are essentially three fates of ingested glucose for everyone healthy or not. The first is oxidation, which provides energy for us using the electron transport chain. The second is glycolysis, which makes energy a lot slower and generates lactate as a byproduct. And lastly, and I want to emphasize the importance of glycogen, which is the storage form of glucose that the liver and skeletal muscles use to buffer blood glucose levels when they're low. The important thing between our healthy and insulin-sensitive crowd and our sedentary individuals is that the latter can't get glucose into skeletal muscle glycogen. Studies done by Gerald Schulman and his team have really proven that this pathway is the one that is affected with insulin resistance. And it kind of makes sense if you think about it. If the biochemical block wasn't allowing glucose to be used for energy, people with diabetes wouldn't be able to move or think. That's actually a really intuitive approach that you took, but I want to just reiterate for my audience that 
it's this failure to simulate glucose into skeletal muscle glycogen where that's where we're having the key blockage in insulin resistance. But we're going to take a step back for a second. And I want to, I want to get a basis on where we're getting that. Where are we getting this glucose from? Like what foods would you say account for the majority of our glucose consumption? Cause a lot like on the, we just went over nutrition labels and there's not really a section on nutrition labels. That's talking about glucose or glucose consumption. So right off the bat, we have things like bread and pasta and rice, and these foods have a lot of glucose that can be absorbed and used right away. You also have your starches, which are the more complex forms of carbs, which are your things like potatoes and legumes, which take a little longer to be broken down and used. So next on our list is fruits, which have natural sugars made of both glucose and fructose. Fruits in their whole form are going to have a lot of fiber, so we don't really see a big spike in glucose or insulin that we'd see with some of these other foods. Dairy is another big one. Even though it has lactose as we consume it, our body is going to break it down into glucose and galactose. Our last one is our table sugar, which also is a molecule of glucose bound to a molecule of fructose. So what's the difference between all these foods? The way I like to think about these foods is how do they raise glucose? And really, how do they raise insulin? Things like your bread and pasta are going to cause both of these to spike a lot quicker than something with more fiber. Those peaks and valleys are going to cause issues with energy balance and contribute to this creep towards metabolic syndrome and diabetes. Yeah. And I mean, that's a really important distinction to make. And I really hope it's not lost on a listener. You know, we keep mentioning this. We've mentioned this in other podcasts before that glucose, it's not the enemy. It's those, all those other things that come with it and impaired glucose disposal, that becomes the enemy. So we keep mentioning hyperinsulinemia and why we want to avoid it. But Dr. Gutierrez, do you think you can dive deeper into what's actually happening when we have these chronic high levels of insulin? What's happening to the different organ systems in our body? Yeah. And this part is really the crux of the discussion overall. I think when we develop hyperinsulinemia, We wreak havoc on so many different body systems because insulin isn't just something that gets glucose into cells. It also acts as a growth factor. If you think about this from an evolutionary standpoint, it becomes so abundantly clear why this is the case. When we have insulin on board, it means we have food on board. You have to remember that most of our evolutionary history has been one of limited nutrient availability. So it makes sense that anytime we have food, it should be directed towards anabolic processes. So how is insulin considered anabolic? Well, in addition to promoting glucose and amino acid uptake, it also directly stimulates cell proliferation and inhibits cell death. You can really see how this is an issue. In the liver, we get accumulation of fat, which leads to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And this is actually quickly becoming one of the leading causes of cirrhosis and liver failure across the world. Another condition that is affecting more and more women is polycystic ovary syndrome. I think we are seeing more data that points to this super obvious correlation between these two conditions, and it's really something to keep on the radar. As far as the immune system, we know that chronic hyperinsulinemia can lead to low-grade or sterile inflammation, which are going to accelerate things like atherosclerosis. Speaking of the heart and lipids, Hyperinsulinemia increases DNL in which the liver produces fat. This is going to cause higher triglyceride levels and put someone at a much higher risk for ASCVD. So that makes me think about all the uh, like chronic health conditions that we have, especially in America, all these NCDs, these non-communicable diseases. Uh, 
when we're talking about like modern society, modern American society, and I think we can directly correlate the causality with the worsening food environment that's surrounding us here in America and an increase in that's like coupled with this increase in hyperinsulinemia. So with that in mind, I want you to go into are the pharmacologic choices that we have specifically for treatment of type 2 diabetes. So there are a lot of drugs on the market to treat type 2 diabetes. And from a business standpoint, these pharmaceutical companies are making a lot of money on these drugs. The first one, which I think a lot of your listeners are familiar with, is metformin. And metformin is a super interesting drug that works by creating some stress in the mitochondria and through some other mechanisms increases insulin sensitivity. As far as diabetes drugs go, metformin is probably one of my personal favorites. Our other big class is the sulfonuria drugs. And these guys stimulate the pancreas to produce more insulin in order to keep blood glucose low. On a kind of similar note, we have the GLP-1 agonists, and these drugs are also going to raise insulin while suppressing glucagon. Our sodium glucose cotransporter 2 inhibitors are another awesome drug class that make our kidneys reabsorb less glucose, meaning the rest is excreted in the urine. As a last resort, thankfully, is exogenous insulin, which patients inject daily to manage blood sugar. What you might have noticed is that most of these drugs sparing metformin and SGLT2 inhibitors work by increasing the amount of circulating insulin. Do you see the issue? We just spent a couple minutes discussing all the problems with chronic hyperinsulinemia and most of the drugs I mentioned directly contribute to it. I'm really hoping that the future of this field pushes towards lifestyle modifications or drugs that do a better job to increase insulin sensitivity. We agree, you know, and that's one of the reasons that we do this podcast. I think it's so easy to prescribe or be prescribed a drug to treat these these symptoms without really fixing the underlying problem. So with that in mind, what are some ways that we can increase insulin sensitivity and then combat these issues? Yeah, so this is what I'm really passionate about because people really can adopt a healthier lifestyle and prevent or reverse a lot of these issues. So the first modifiable factor that we can push towards changing is weight loss. And there's honestly so much nuance to this conversation that we really need to appreciate. Calories and energy deficit are a big part of weight loss, but there's also this hormonal axis that we also need to consider Another thing insulin does is put the brakes on fat breakdown, so these patients who are already unfit are also at a disadvantage because of that. Exercise is probably my favorite thing to talk about because anybody can adopt it and it has such potent effects. And the types of exercise that are most effective when it comes to increasing insulin sensitivity are zone 2 aerobic activity and strength or resistance training. These two tools are seriously going to help people move the needle and physiology in the right direction. So our zone two training is that low intensity walking or cycling or jogging that is going to use the most amount of fatty acids for fuel. Over time, this is going to increase mitochondrial density and just make the person a better oxidizer of all fuels. And this is really easy stuff. I mean, I do my zone two exercise on a treadmill while watching a movie or listening to a podcast. I'd say 40 minutes a day, if you can aim for it, at least two to three days a week is going to be necessary and sufficient. Okay, the other one I mentioned is resistance training. And this is going to be your weight 
or resistance band training that's going to stimulate strength gains and hypertrophy. This does two really important things when it comes to insulin sensitivity. The first is that it stimulates insulin-independent glucose uptake. Insulin-independent, that is super important. When we contract our muscles, we activate AMP kinase, which helps shuttle the transporters up to the cell membrane without the need of insulin. The other thing is that skeletal muscles are glucose sinks. You can think back to our discussion on glycogen to understand that bigger muscles equal bigger sinks. Besides exercise, we also want to emphasize a healthier diet can really make a difference. This is going to include less refined carbs and more fiber, while also increasing your protein and healthy fat intake. If this sounds a lot like the Mediterranean diet, it's because that's exactly what it is. We've known for decades now that this diet really contributes to longevity and disease prevention. I know you guys have talked about the standard American diet a couple times, and that is your prototypical example of what exactly not to eat. Going from a highly processed diet to a healthy one is expensive and time-consuming, but it's going to pay dividends in the long term. Another thing I really advocate for now is monitoring tools. Think of your Dexcom or other continuous glucose monitors. Even if you wear one of these things for a month, you really get so much insight into what different foods do to your numbers. For diabetics especially, tracking glucose levels is going to really give you an idea of what foods are problematic and which interventions are helpful. Other obvious lifestyle choices are going to include getting more sleep and avoiding alcohol and tobacco. I think most of the folks listening already know how important it is to not smoke, but alcohol over time is really damaging. That was an amazing summary. I appreciate you taking your time to go through all that. And that's a whole lot to unpack. But something that I don't think is mentioned a lot in society or something that a lot of healthcare providers think about, but I know a lot of patients have concerns about is the psychological aspects of metabolic health. And as an expert, do you have anything to say in regards to this topic? I definitely think there's a lot to be said when it comes to metabolic health and social and psychological health. Not only do problems with mental health and cognition contribute to worsening fitness, but metabolic syndrome can also interfere with those things. It kind of causes a negative feedback loop where a lot of patients suffer. If you think about what it's like to live with diabetes, I mean, these people didn't choose to end up where they are. And I'd also say that these are people that want to get healthier, but it's really not that easy. When providers or people like you and I talk about these strategies to reverse insulin resistance, I worry that it might come off as reductive. It sounds like if you X, then Y will happen. It's obviously a complex and multifactorial approach that will vary between people and what works at the population level may not work for the individual, and what may work for one individual might not work for another. There's this really important dynamic that advocates need to pay attention to, where we want to provide a framework for people to follow, but at the same time, we don't want to come off too broad. I just want to emphasize to people struggling with this to practice empathy for yourselves. So I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but this is something that I always think about and I've written blog posts about it and it's just something that I really it's hard to get it's hard to get through to people without really explaining the science but 
we talk about fructose and we talk about glucose. And those are obviously two different molecules. And when we have something like table sugar or natural sugar and fruits, it's, they, they come together in this package. So are the, what are the differences, because there are some, between glucose and fructose metabolism? I absolutely do. So we've kept talking about glucose over this episode, and we've talked about why it's so important, but you alluded to fructose as well. Fructose is our other big monosaccharide that people consume, and it's found in things like fruits and table sugar. Even though fructose and glucose look very similar, they have different metabolic pathways. Without going too much into the biochemistry, although I'm sure you'd love to, fructose is going to lead to cellular energy and phosphate depletion. This is going to drive up uric acid and lead to issues with blood pressure and low-grade kidney inflammation. Another thing I need to mention is that fructose can actually bind to proteins as a reducing sugar, and this can make them defective. So without sounding too dogmatic about this, I'd say if you are going to consume fructose, make sure you're getting it with enough fiber. So one last question before you go, and I know this is really out of left field, but you know, we're seeing on the news that pretty much everybody, you can't walk down Madison Square Garden without running into somebody that's heard of chat GPT or any of these other AI, you know, language model-based software. And I'm really curious, how do you think it's going to be integrated into medicine and into research? Can't you see the writing on the wall, Aridi? So if you haven't noticed already, the entire time we've been talking to a procedurally generated AI software that models human speech. So if you're truly fooled by this voice-generated artificial intelligence, what does that tell you about everything else in the world and this whole program of ChatGPT that can just spit out um, you know I can still hear you, right? Every single piece of information within seconds, you have to really think about, is human intelligence at risk? Is my job at risk? And like, what's going to go on in the future? Right. And you know, if you haven't played around with any of these tools yet, I definitely encourage you to do it because this is not like any other product or any other software that's come before it. You know, if you ask Google or you ask your home device, like Google Home, if you ask it a question, it's just going to pull up the, the most paid for, the most common answer right on the top page of Google. Something like ChatGPT it truly has an understanding of the context in which you're asking things. And it, I, it's truly incredible. I encourage every guy, one of you guys to play with it. Yeah, definitely get familiar with how, where, like, where the future is going. Um, but like for this podcast, we didn't just copy and paste from ChatGPT. Like we just get, you can get a good background, get all your subjects down for something. And then we took those subjects made a whole manuscript for it and we just threw it into this artificial intelligence voice generator and that's it, it even tricked me at first I, I was continuously amazed by how real this female artificial voice sounded yeah and i honestly think that there's there's a lot of benefits and there's some definite definite downsides to ai and just procedural generation you know Think about something like an ER environment where, or a critical care environment where you're just, as a provider or even a nurse, you're just inundated with data, vital signs, lab reports, x-ray data. 
And I mean, it's very common to make mistakes. I mean, humans, we make mistakes. And you know, I will say that machines make mistakes. I've noticed a couple, you know, errors on ChatGPT or some of these other products. But the thing is, from a a you know statistic standpoint, there's just less errors. And I don't think that AI is going to replace many jobs per se, but I definitely can see how it could be integrated into this position. But one of the, uh, why don't we just go ahead, why don't we ask uh, Dr. Gutierrez, what do you think the, um, how do you think healthcare could be integrated with AI? I think AI has the capability to integrate well with physicians and other health service professionals. Just kidding. You're all getting replaced. Well, that's concerning, but it really does bring up the whole negative side of this, which is everything we told you today, this all was accurate information, stuff that has been well-researched and we have all of our sources for it, just like all the information we give you on the Function Health podcast. But the thing is, if I was, if I had a more nefarious cause and I wanted to relay information to you, I could create a fake doctor. I could create a fake college. Wait, so Pentech isn't a real college? And I can create false information that a lot of people would really believe to be real. Which is funny you say that because how is that any different from what's going on in the media and in the news right now? But once again, um, it was a pleasure to have you here guys on Function Health Podcast. And as always... I'll take it from here, Ryan. Thank you for listening to the Function Health Podcast. Catch ya next time. Dr. Gutierrez out.